The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, uh, tonight, I would like to talk about disappointment. So, um, the reason I'd like to talk about disappointment is it's up for me. (laughs) There are lots of things in life that we get disappointed about. And one of the central questions I have is, is disappointment a condition of life or is it a feature of conditions? How does disappointment arise? What does it mean? How do I meet it? Where does it come from? Do I need to have it? (laughs) And how can I mitigate against it? You know, we're all familiar with disappointment. We have, we have, they range from the trivial to the not so trivial. You know, well, they're out of my favorite flavor of ice cream. How could they not have butter pecan ice cream? This is an insult to my life. To things that are much more serious, like betrayal of a spouse or friend or family. But they're all about things not meeting our expectations, things not meeting our hopes, our wishes, our needs. There is this feeling that things are not the way they should be. They're just not the way they should be. There's there's this imperative about how I want my life to be. So tonight we're going to have a tentative definition of disappointment as the emotional response to things not being the way I want them. The emotional response to things not being the way I would like them to be, other than the way we expect, want, or rely upon them to be. The emotional response to that. Because it is an emotional response. Disappointment is not mental. It arises in the mind, but it's definitely an emotional response. Disappointment. There's a slumping feeling. There's a, this shouldn't be feeling. It's about wanting and not wanting. It's about leaning into something that isn't true. You know, this, oh, it should be this way and it's not. It's greed and hatred, greed and aversion, masquerading as insult. But it really arises out of our own wants and our own aversions. It really comes out of us. And that's a hard thing to, to look at. And it's habit-forming. It's habit-forming. <laughs> this wanting, this preferences, this, this, this is how life should be. This is the way it is when it's right. This is a habit. It's a mental, emotional habit that we've created for ourselves. This leaning into it leaning into something that actually isn't true. We can't be disappointed if it's right here in front of us, but it's that what we think it should be, ought to be, might be, that doesn't actually exist. It is a form of delusion. You know, we're not talking here about whether we have dreams and aspirations. This is more like we really expect it to be out there. This is the delusionary part about it. We really expect it. I'm sure it's going to be that way because, well, it has to be that way. Okay, And then what we get when it's not that way, when we experience it not being that way, is disappointed. So, So what's wrong with wanting butter pecan ice cream or not liking broccoli? Nothing really. I mean, there's nothing wrong with these things these wants, these preferences, except for the habit of wanting. It isn't so much what we want, but the wanting part. It's the, I want this. How badly do we want it? That's, that's the part that leads to suffering and unhappiness. It turns out that if they don't have butter pecan ice cream, I'm not really eating ice cream right now anyway, so what do I care? 
How could they not have that flavor, right? We get very attached to something that isn't even that important. Really isn't even that important. To be clear, it's in our nature to have preferences. When I came tonight, I brought my own cushions. I didn't rely on the cushions here. I brought my cushions. I have this this gel cushion. I have this wedge cushion. And I can sit just this way on the ed- edge of the, the teacher's block here because, you know, I'm just more comfortable that way. It's all about preferences. There's nothing inherently wrong with preferences. But as I was thinking about that and I got ready to put my cushions down, I noticed there were two Zabutans here instead of one. And I thought, oh, no, there should only be one there. And so I deliberately sat on both of them. This is a trivial thing, but it is about understanding, wanting, and preferences. And saying, so what happens if I sit on two Zabutans and my two cushions? Well, I'll tell you, it's not as comfortable, but, you know, I didn't die. (laughs) And I was able to sit here and meditate. And the habit of always comforting ourselves, consoling ourselves, soothing ourselves, becomes a habit that leads to disappointment. Because we begin to think, this is the way it should be. This is who I am. I'm a person who, and here is the rub. What we're really doing is creating a self that has certain needs and wants and desires. It's the creating of this self that we say, oh, this is me, and this is what I need, that is creating the suffering. So preferences construct a view of what we see, not only what we want to see, but what we see. So that it turns out that the things that we're looking for are the, thing, the only things we can see or not see when they're not there. We don't actually see everything else that's happening because we're so focused on our preferences. It's a way of limiting the mind, these habits of preferences. So I just got back from a road trip to visit my family. Now think about that, road trip long road trip. My family lives in Phoenix, okay? So we drove to Phoenix. Lots of opportunities for things to not meet one's expectations. There's driving, there's hotels, there's food, lots of unfamiliarity, not to mention getting to your family, which is almost, you know, the same as looking for trouble, right? There was a a wonderful card I saw at Spirit Rock one time that said, of course your family pushes all your buttons, they installed them. (laughs) So I land, I get there, I'm all prepared for all, I had turned out I had all kinds of expectations about what was going to happen. uh, My stepmother was celebrating her 95th birthday, and that's what I went for was her party. And I just imagined all the things that was going to happen, and mostly what I imagined never happened. Most of it did not. And a lot of surprising things happened, some of which were even good. But lots of thwarted expectations, for good or ill. It turns out that we often arrive at places with hopes designed around, I hope what happened last time doesn't happen this time. There's really a lot of aversion around that hope. (laughs) Or we hope that we can be better in the situation than we were last time. This is another big one. It's tied around expectations about ourselves and how much we've evolved since the last time we had that fight with our brother. I'm happy to say I didn't fight with anybody. (laughs) This was really great. One of the really pleasant surprises of the week. But what happens with preferences is it turns out you don't really see what's happening 
very clearly. And this, the secret around not being constantly at the mercy of disappointment is to recognize your preferences, to recognize your biases, to recognize a want when you see it as just a want. It's neither good nor bad. It's just a want. And that, that leaning, that wanting, that grasping part of it is, is really the problem. It isn't that what you want is bad at all. But it piles up, this wanting. And that's what we call suffering. This is the arising of suffering. When you can meet the moment more with a spirit of, okay, what's happening now, as opposed to what happened before, what might happen, what I'd like to have happen, but just what's happening, there's a lot more openness and freedom about what arises. There's a lot less clouding by history or fantasy. And you're actually able to see clearly what's happening as opposed to only seeing what you're looking for. So uh, one of the things that happened while I was in Phoenix is that we all, all of us as a group, came to the conclusion that my mother needed more care and that in order to help pay for this care and to make her life more simple, she needed to move to a one-bedroom apartment. So, things moved very quickly, and it turned out that there was a one-bedroom apartment available, and we should go look at these two apartments, and we all rushed off to look at these, all of us. The, uh, well, actually, not all of us. There's a big troop in my family, but a substantial number of us went off to look at these apartments. And lo and behold, we all saw something different. We all were looking for what would make us comfortable, what would be convenient if we were 95, what we would like to see out the window, whether we'd like to have a door or a window. Oh, so some people would say, no, no, The first floor apartment is better because she'll want to be able to walk outside. She can hardly walk. But she'll want to go outside. And that's a value that I have and that other members of my family have. Or, no, no, no. What's really important is the ADA bathroom that has these features in it. Oh, no, what's important is it's right by the... there's, There's social opportunities because it's in the building where the dining hall is. Everybody was seeing what was important to them. And the only positive thing that my mother said was, you know, I could put my blue chair right here and look out there. Now, she was sitting on a walker, and the rest of us were standing. So everybody was looking out the window and, the, and the, oh, talking about the patio down below. She was, I looked at her, and she was looking off into the sky. For her, it turned out what was more important than anything about the apartment was that she saw more of the sky in this one apartment than she did where she's living now. And to her, that was more valuable than everything. But it took a while for everybody to notice that. And she kept saying, well, what do you think? Well, what do you think? Well, what do you think? And everybody was giving her all the reasons why they thought one or the other places was good. But it turned out what made a difference was what she saw. And our ability to see what she saw was not immediate. It was not immediate. But as soon as it was named, then she owned it. And she said, oh yeah, I want to be able to watch the clouds. I just want to be able to watch the clouds. And, and one sister would say, well, you know, the floor here is this way. And, the, and I said, no, no, listen to her. Listen, this, this ability not to have your preferences color what you see, is, it's not easy. It's actually really difficult to not let your preferences guide what you see and what you experience. 
It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of practice. It's actually a feature of the second noble truth. Suffering arises. And suffering arises out of wanting things to be other than they are. Other than they are. So it's not about aspirations. It's about saying, if this isn't true, I'm going to be unhappy. This has to be true or I'm going to be unhappy. Every time you get a formulation like that, you're setting yourself up. We are setting ourselves up. You know, back in my early days, I'd say when I was a teenager, actually, I came to the conclusion that the only way not to be disappointed was to not have any expectations. Now, at that time, it was, you know, teenage angst and despair. But it turns out it's actually true. I don't mean dreams and aspirations, but expectations the, the statement, the unconscious or conscious statement that if this doesn't happen, I can't be happy. If this person is not in my life, if this condition is not true, if, if I can't be a better person, I'm going to be unhappy. That conditional, that expectation part of it, is what gives rise to suffering. And it prevents us from actually seeing that we are distorting our experience by these wants and preferences. So let me tell you what I mean by that. What we are aware of determines our experience. So if a car is driving by and I don't hear it or see it, as far as I'm concerned, that car doesn't exist. It certainly doesn't exist in my experience. So that ability to be aware of something is what determines that we have an experience at all. That consciousness only sees where we look. It only hears what we listen to. It only allows what we allow. It's a mirror. It isn't active in the sense that consciousness can decide what we're going to do. It's just an awareness. Just an awareness. It's aware. It's, it's more of a, a mirror than an active feature. I, I know I can get in trouble with this. There are lots of definitions for consciousness, but the way I'm using it is in the spirit of awareness. It's what we're aware of. So if we're only looking here, then I am distorting the experience of this room because I'm ignoring everybody else. I'm ignoring everything else that's happening because I'm so focused on this poor person here that I'm staring at. That's the distortion, and that creates a delusion. This is the most important person in the world because this is the person I'm looking at. And it turns out it's self-referential. It's about me. It's what I'm doing, as are the preferences We don't say the preferences. We say my preferences. It's my thing that I want. It isn't, you know, impersonal. I want it. I want it. It's about, it is self-referential and not related to other people. This is extremely important when you think about disappointment because disappointment almost always is attached to someone else. (laughs) I'm disappointed because that person didn't do something. They didn't have my ice cream. That person didn't that person was unfaithful. That person was rude. That person but we're really talking about our own reaction to what happened. Disappointment is self-referential. It has to do with what I see and what I want. So, how do, what do we do about that? You know, it's sort of common. This, this is it. We're, we do this. You know, this, this is kind of a natural thing. Of course I know what I like. 
Of course I like that. Of course I don't like that. I don't want that to happen. We're used to making ourselves comfortable, scratching the itch, moving the hair out of the face. We're used to this. Because, you know, why not? Because it is habit-forming to always comfort ourselves and not be aware of the fact that that's what we're doing. When we're aware of it, if we can see, oh, this is me trying to be comfortable, okay, I can choose how important is that to be comfortable. What happens if I don't do that? What happens if I'm not creating expectations? This is a world where there's more freedom. And it leaves me much more open to seeing what I'm not looking for. Because I'm not so focused down on something. I'm, I'm open to something else. I haven't put all my preferences in concrete. Some preferences are left open. And I don't have to be the person who believes such and such, who has such and such ideas that require people to be such and such a way, that I'm only happy if my holiday goes this way. I'm much more likely to be attached to ideas and behaviors that lead to disappointment if I'm not constantly soothing and making myself comfortable kind of counterintuitive. I'm much less likely to suffer if I spend a little practice time on being okay with being uncomfortable. (laughs) Oh, it's not that bad. So one of the things that I've been doing, and if you've heard any of my talks lately, you know that I'm reading a particular book, which is by Andrew Odlinsky, called Untangling Self, a Buddhist investigation of who we really are. So here's something he says. I'm going to read it to you just so I get the words right. The crux of the second noble truth is not what you want, but the very fact that you want. Greed and hatred, even in their modest forms of wanting and not wanting, delimit and thereby restrict the mind. They carve our minds into boxes and compartments, hemming us in with habits, wishes, wants, and needs. Consciousness, which like a luminous mirror, is capable of reflecting whatever object it encounters, is restricted, distorted, and even perverted by the likes and dislikes of our emotional habits, even those that seem innocuous. Under such circumstances, it's impossible to see things as they really are. Our emotional habits determine what we're aware of. Our preferences and wants get in the way of seeing things clearly. So what do we do about that? If we want to save the world and make it a better place, if we want to make ourselves into the paragons of virtue that we would like to be, if we want to be happy, we have to be able to see clearly. We have to not be at the mercy of all our wants and preferences. We really have to see clearly. Not just what we want to see. We have to be able to see through other people's eyes as well as our own. Like my mother staring off into the sky, we have to be able to see that and not just what would make us comfortable. Otherwise we miss it. I have to give up always trying to make myself comfortable. Now, what Olensky suggests is developing the practice of equanimity. Not equanimity that says, oh, everything's okay. But the equanimity that says, I'm okay if it's not just the way I want it. Which is kind of different. I'm not okay with things that are, are not good but I'm not so attached to what I think is good. Do you see the difference? It's a very subtle difference, but it's an important difference. Equanimity is 
seeing things just as they are and saying, oh, that's how they are. Oh, that's how they are. Now I can decide what to do about them as opposed to, oh, it's not the way I wanted it to be. It should be different than that. You can see that the tension around that is different. The energy around that is different. So mindfulness is a practice of equanimity. Because mindfulness tells us to bless, put our attention on something without judgment. Just, just watching it. It's what makes mindfulness of the breath so useful. Because what we're doing is just watching the breath, experiencing the breath. We're not telling the breath how to be. We're not saying this breath is good and this breath is bad. It's just the breath. We're just sitting. We're noticing it. It's like this. It's deep. It's shallow. It's short. It's fast. It's irregular. It's just the breath. Mindfulness doesn't have an opinion about what it sees. The practice of not having an opinion about your experience leads to equanimity. It's just clear seeing. Just clear seeing. Oh, this is how it is. I don't have to have an I don't have to call it good or bad. I can call it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. But I don't have to jump to liking it, wanting it, not liking it, not wanting it. That's extra. Equanimity rests in just noticing pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Just noticing it. Oh, oh. One of my favorite practices is the intention to see what I'm not seeing. Think about that. To see what I'm not seeing. Because I know there's a lot I don't see. There's a lot I don't notice. So every once in a while I'll say to myself, self, what are you missing? What else is happening here? Which is what I've recently done around the whole question of disappointment. So I say, okay, what's really going on here? Disappointment is present. Unhappiness, this isn't the way it should be, should be different than this. What, what's actually happening here? If I can practice not having an opinion, just, just clearly this is what's happening, and notice how difficult it is, by the way, notice how difficult it is not to have an opinion about you know, seeing a roach scuttle across the bathroom floor. No opinion, just a roach. (laughs) But isn't it their guilt to have opinions about what's what's good behavior and what's bad behavior? So, So let me just tell you that we're recording, so it's better if you speak into a microphone when you ask a question. And so I'm just going to say, she asked the question, isn't it valuable to have opinions about what is good and what is bad so that you have appropriate behavior? So what I want to do is make a distinguish, to distinguish between uh, uh, skillful behavior and opinions about this is good and this is bad. Because good and bad is about wanting and not wanting. Whereas discernment over whether something is causing suffering, which is the, the context that we're using right now, has to do with seeing whether something is causing suffering to you or someone else. Now, if it's causing suffering, then you, you don't, don't do it. You stop. You say, I'm not going to do that. If it's not causing suffering, then you say, okay, maybe I should cultivate that. So there's a decision process that has to do with discerning whether behavior causes suffering or not suffering. But the good-bad part is opinion, and it's tied into preferences, and those preferences are views through which we are experiencing the world, and those preferences are limiting the way we experience the world. So 
Well, it's very tempting to say, well, if someone, uh, someone harming someone else is bad. And I would say that is behavior that I would not condone and I would be unhappy with. But I can't necessarily control. Sometimes I hurt people unintentionally. That's still not good. And if I am causing them suffering, that follows, falls under this rubric of this is, this is not behavior that I should be doing. This is bad. I need to stop this behavior. There is something that uh, we can say about that, which is um, if I hurt someone, I may have regret. And this is a, a, a useful response, reaction. I regret doing this. But if what I have instead is guilt, oh, this is unforgivable, I'm a terrible person, this is irredeemable, there's nothing I can do, this is not so useful. Because now what I'm doing is I'm saying, I'm denying that, I'm denying that uh, action, I'm pushing it away, and I'm saying I'm not going to do this. This this was bad, and I'm a bad person. So as a, a philosophy, there are lots of things we can say about it. But it isn't going to help me prevent suffering or creating suffering in the future. It's creating more suffering for me. So... Mm. I don't really want to spend much time talking about opinions about what's good and bad, but to say that good and bad are decisions based on what you value, not necessarily what someone else might value. There are behaviors that we all agree are harmful that we don't condone. But opinions about Um, you know, purple is good and red is bad, not so useful. So I'm going to set that aside and say we could talk more about that, but this talk is really about something else, so I want to go back to my topic, okay? So one thing to think about when you're experiencing disappointment is is to say, how do I meet it? What, What shows up? And the first thing is to go, ouch, it hurts. So an appropriate question is, what hurts? What hurts? My self-esteem hurts. My sense of justice hurts. I'm embarrassed. Uh, It's denying me comfort. How do I look? I look like an idiot. What is the cause of the disappointment? Is it tied to an old wound? So a way of looking at dis- of when you experience disappointment is to say, what's here? Okay, disappointment is kind of an umbrella word. What is it? What's hurting? What's hurting? Very often it has to do with some sense of self. How could they treat me this way? How could that be true? What's wrong with those people? There's a a sense of something is wrong. But that wrong, where does it arise from? What is it that is being threatened in me that gives rise to disappointment? It's neither good nor bad, by the way. It's just seeing clearly what it is. See what it is. Don't call it good or bad. See what it is. Then decide whether it's skillful and should be cultivated or not. So if I I see my sense of injustice is offended, that's a terrible thing. What that person has just done is a terrible thing to that person or to someone else or to me. What is it about that sense of injustice that has been injured? The world should be a different place. The world should be different than it is. Now, I can sit around and be disappointed and angry about that, which is feeding a very negative energy in me, or I can say, this needs to be fixed. 
And now I'm going to put some, I can resolve to do something about that. But it is not useful to keep retelling myself the story about how it's an injustice. Because all that does is just create negative energy. It is an aversion act and not a positive act at all, even though it is about justice, which is a value that I hold, which I think is good, but someone else may not value as highly as I do. Can I feel the suffering and see that it is tied to my own expectation? That the suffering is arising out of my expectation, how I want to see the world. How do I see it? And not really by what's outside. The trigger, the suffering, suffering is kind of secondary, is in addition to whatever the insult is in the world. It took me really a long time to experience this. I mean, it's one thing to talk about it, and it's another thing to experience what's meant by it. And it used to make me really angry when people would tell me that my disappointment was my fault. It really made me angry. Uh, uh, Particularly around a, a situation having to do with holidays, where I was always disappointed by holidays. And it turned out it was because I thought holidays should be a certain way that wasn't shared by my family, as it turns out. They thought holidays ought to be a different way. They thought holidays should be just, nobody has to do anything, and I had this vision of holidays where we were all doing something, in short. And I was always disappointed. And it wasn't until I stopped wanting holidays to be a certain way that they became, they became times of joy for me. But it took forever for me to get that. It really took a long time. So I'm not claiming that this is intuitively obvious or simple. But noticing where the disappointment is, what the disappointment is feeding, what it is that you've created in yourself that leads to an expectation that is thwarted, see that. It doesn't mean that what the other person did or the situation is good and that your reaction is the only thing that's bad. It's just that your suffering is primarily around your own reaction to it. And that's not intuitive. You just have to experience it. How important is the expectation? You know, the butter pecan ice cream is really not important. Have you ever experienced extreme pain over some incident and, you know, two weeks later you can't even remember it? But, wow, at the time, it was a killer. It was a real emotional tie around whatever it was. And, you know, only a couple of days later you kind of can't quite remember what you were so angry about or so upset about or so hurt by. Part of it is that we begin to see it in a slightly different way. With just a little space, we begin to see it in a different way. So what we want to do is train ourselves to see more clearly sooner. Just sooner. Just see it quicker. Is the outrage appropriate? Is the outrage appropriate? Can something be wrong and need to be changed without losing your own peace of mind. Can you view an injustice and say this is wrong without losing peace of mind? You know, there's a, a, there's a belief among people that anger is a good motivator for getting things done. But I don't really think so. I think anger is a negative emotion. And if you really want to get things done, it should come from a place of hopefulness. The energy that arises out of, okay, this can be done, a a determination. You can feel that sense of determination 
even when you sit in mindfulness, I'm just going to pay attention to this breath. And you can feel the energy of that effort, of that, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to do this and nothing else. When you can feel that energetic attention engagement, you begin to understand that you can use that sense of engagement in lots of places and lots of situations. And that the the energy of disappointment is deflating. Especially disappointment in yourself. You know, you think, oh, I really should be better than this. I really should be better than this. And you, you feel that, that condemnation of not being quite what you thought you could be, are, would be, might be. And, there's, and you realize there's this image, the perfect you. And then you feel like, you know, if you failed, just aren't quite making it. When in truth, being able just to see it is quite a big deal. Quite a big deal. Most people go through life and never even notice why, why they're upset with something, why they've fallen down on something. They just know everything is bad. The ability to see, oh, ugh, I wish I hadn't done that. Well, I'm not going to do it again. And to resolve to do what feels more skillful, what feels more in tune with your intentions, what feels freeing as opposed to maintaining a view of how things should be. The Buddha said, Better than 100 years lived with an unsettled mind devoid of insight is one day lived with insight and absorbed in meditation. Better than 100 years lived without seeing the arising and passing of things is one day seeing their arising and passing. I like this. Just one day is better than a hundred years of not being that way. I find that very hopeful. I find that energizing. It doesn't matter how many times I have failed. Because this is now. I don't have to live in the past. I don't have to live in the future. I can live just right now. Right here. In the Book of Eights, it's, it's written, Subdue greed for sensual pleasure. See renunciation as peace. Let there be nothing you take up or reject. Let there be nothing you take up or reject. Let what was in the past fade away. Make nothing of the future. If you don't cling to what is in the present... You can wander about calm. This is kind of a statement that we create our own agitation. We create our own disappointments. And we create them through a series of preferences that we insist be right. Is there a way to walk through the world just seeing clearly and not being controlled by habit? Not being controlled by habit. So, this has led me to think about David Budbill, who is a, a poet I particularly like. And he has a, a sense of uh, self-sarcasm that appeals to me. <laughs> <clears throat> so this is a, a poem he wrote 
Actually, shortly before he died, this book of poems was printed after he died. And the title of this poem is Melancholy Thoughts. Today, while walking through the rainy woods heading home, all I can think about is how all too soon I will be gone, and never will I walk again beneath these barren, rain-soaked trees, never will I pad again over these soft and quiet leaves, never return home again to stand beside the warming stove, never again be drunk on sadness or on wine, if only I would never reach the end, if only I always, if I could always only be on the way. Ah, isn't this it? If only I could always, if I could always only be on the way, if I could always only be on the way, if we can live in this moment, always be on the way, we are not at the mercy of what used to be, what might be, what won't be, what I hope would be. We are simply living. We are living simply. And we're saying, oh, this is how it is now. We can be on the way. We don't have to be there. If I could always only be on the way. And a second poem related to that but written many years before, called My House. Now, it helps if you think of this house as, you know, you, (laughs) that you've created, right? I built the house I live in. I built it myself. It's been sturdy and strong all these years. Now, little by little, something cracks here, breaks there, falls apart somewhere else. Repair this, fix that. It's an endless and losing battle. It can't last forever no matter how hard I work at it. After a while, you just can't keep up. Sooner or later, it's all going to come down. This self that we have created for ourselves is a house that we're constantly fixing and repairing. Let it crack. Sooner or later, it's all going to fall down. Thank you. I hope this was useful. Questions, comments, stones, objections. I honor your objection already. Yeah, that was a really great talk. Thank you for sharing. Uh, but uh, don't you think it's some having some expectations are necessary for being able to have a good life and a normal life? That I ex- don't expect my uh, house to fall down or like I, I have some um, trust f- for the people who's close to me and I expect them to do as they promise and uh, behave in a certain way isn't that isn't that the, like healthy to have expectations like that uh, so i'm i'm going to put those in the category of uh, hopes and aspirations so here's here's why i'm making that what might seem like a strange distinction so i remember uh when my husband and I got married, we, got, we decided we'd been living together for a very long time, for 10 years, and we decided we were going to get married. And we were going to get married in a month. And I was signed up for a retreat, a two-week retreat in the middle of that month. And I went on the retreat. And I had a hard time focusing because, you know, it was actually a pretty romantic time of my life. And there was a lot to get done. We were planning a wedding. And I said, you know, I shouldn't be at this retreat. And 
Gil Franzdo was the teacher, and he said, no, no, this is where you should be. He said, uh, what are you going to do when he's not there? If you can't be here, what are you going to do if you lose him? And I, at the time, I thought it was a very cruel thing to ask me. <laughs> but in retrospect, I understand completely what he was saying, which was that I could be happy even if I didn't have to be focused on, the only way I could be happy is with him, that I could miss him, that I could be sad about not taking full advantage of all this romantic period, but that in truth, I needed to be able to be ju- happy with just as it was. And it's, it's a lesson that came in very handy when he had a, a stroke, and I did almost lose him. And I was able to just be with that and say, ah, I see. That's really scary. <laughs> and, and I had some experience of being able to be a whole person without having him there. In other words, my happiness did not depend on the expectation that he would be there, even though I am happier with him than without So I aspire, I hope to be with him as long as possible. But I don't depend on him to exist. And that dependency is what keeps it from becoming um, a major source of suffering to be in love with someone. Does that make any sense? So... So we have, it's important to have dreams and aspirations. It's important to desire for a better future. What's, what gets, into, gets us into trouble is the belief that there's only one way for it to be. Okay? All right. I think it's time to go. Thank you all for your patience. Good night. May you always be on the way. <laughs> <laughs>